From multiple locations in our beloved Minneapolis, or near enough, this is Nice Games Club, a show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. I'm Ellen Burns-Johnson, and I make nice games. I'm Steve McGregor, and I make nice games. And I'm Martha Croy, I too make nice games. For this week's episode, our topics are animation and establishing a sense of place. And so, if everyone is ready, let's start. All right. Kind of a big episode, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, we have some uh, fun things to talk about. This is our normal roundtable episode, but mm-hmm. uh, we're recording this on uh, Sunday, the 31st of May, um, where uh, this past week in Minneapolis has been quite a lot of news. So we wanted to talk a little bit about that at, at the top. It's not really it's not really what you listen to Nice Games Club for, but we talked about it in advance and we decided that we didn't want anyone to escape it. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? It's something we need to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'll, I establish a bit of a timeline, so we can talk a little bit about what has happened in the last week, um, and we'll, we'll, um, you know, we'll have our comments and our thoughts. But we just want to make sure that more people know what happened, and maybe they can look further into um, uncovering the systemic reasons for it, and and maybe even get active to um, help change things uh, to make them better. So. Um, on Monday the 25th, uh, a black man, George Floyd, 46 years old, was killed by a white police officer in Minneapolis. Um, he had uh, um, he put his uh, knee on his throat. Uh, George protested, I can't breathe. And uh, later he died. Um, and this is, was caught on tape by a civilian. And as is often the case with these things, it led to a lot of reactions. Um, and, uh, it was a day later that the four officers who were involved, the, the officer who killed him and three others on the scene were, uh, fired by the police department, which was something, but I think, uh, as we all know, in these events, uh, that is not enough. Um, I don't think it's a political statement to say that, uh, that was, uh, uh um, the very least that could have been done in this situation. And yeah. so immediately there were calls to do more. Um, the police chief also, uh, uh, when they were fired, also called on the FBI to investigate, kind of trying to make an effort to take it seriously. Um, and I think a lot of people didn't feel that was enough. And so protests began that night. Um, and it was uh, the, the, the main protests here in Minneapolis were focused on the intersection of Lake and Minnehaha. These are probably uh, images and videos that you've seen in the news. Um, including a, a target on that block that was broken into, and there were local businesses in the neighborhood which were vandalized. Uh, I have a cousin who uh, is a, a worker owner at a bike shop uh, right next to the police precinct in that in, on that neighborhood, and that was broken into as well. And uh, later that week, the third precinct building on that block was burned down after it was abandoned by the police force. There were reports of journalists being attacked by police. There was a CNN reporter who was arrested on air. So it was uh, a rough, uh, you know, few days uh, with a lot going on. Mm-hmm. The next piece on the timeline here is on Friday, the 29th. That's two days ago from where we're sitting, but a little over a, a bit over a week ago from where you are now. The officer who killed George Floyd was arrested and charged with third degree murder, which, um, again, is something. But I think a lot of people felt it wasn't enough. Um, the report, uh, which, which described the preliminary findings uh, in the making of the arrest, felt like it wasn't quite strong enough in in uh, um, basically saying what happened, which is that uh, this man was murdered by a police officer. Mm. Other things that happened on Friday, uh, a, a Twitter ruled that a, a tweet from the president and another from the official White House account 
had violated its rules against glorifying violence. And you can look into find out exactly what was said, but it's pretty clear cut. And uh, Twitter uh, blocked those tweets from view, um, but didn't delete them. So you can you can find them and then click a button, but you can't retweet or reply to them, which is um, and again, people's reaction as to whether that's good enough. Um, but it's it's the it's the strongest stance that Twitter has taken in the uh, the saga of nonsense that uh, our, uh, the, our president has um, put on that platform. Uh, peaceful protests spread throughout the state and around the country. Uh, demonstrations at government buildings here in Minneapolis, uh, large crowds um, of pedestrians and cyclists blocking highways, and uh, but also vandalism and unrest spread as well. The governor in Minnesota uh, activated the National Guard for the first time in quite a long time. And there's been differing reports as to whether that's a good or a bad thing. There's um, the you know the National Guard is a military outfit, but there's also been some anecdotal reports that they have been. Uh, using de-escalation tactics. Um, so we don't have uh, a lot of information on the truth on that for you, but you can look into you know, how that's affected the behavior of the uh, protesters. Um, uh, there's an 8, 8 p.m. curfew here in Minneapolis. It's still in effect. It started on that Friday. It was on Saturday. Uh, everyone in, this, in the state got a, um, or at least in the city uh, here, I don't know um, if you two got it, but uh, that used the emergency systems that, that transmits messages to your phone um a yep. uh, uh, warning about the curfew yeah um that's something that was a, a little bit uh, unnerving to see um it's the system that's used for um you know severe weather events amber alerts things like that uh it was a, a message to you know stay indoors um that said there were still protests breaking per- curfew that night from where i'm sitting i i can see uh, a major highway in minneapolis downtown um there were uh protests uh, uh, on to, on through midnight, uh, that seemed uh, pretty peaceful and well organized. And I think that it's certainly important to know that there's uh, a lot of dimensions to what's going on. Uh, in the following days, protests began in other cities, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, uh, all over the country. And, uh, again, reports of police officers using uh, violent means to disperse crowds. Um, this is something that, um, is not in dispute. There's quite a lot of video evidence of quite disturbing behavior from police officers who, are probably not being led very well. Um, I think there's a lot of debate as to what, why this is the case, whether this was always going to happen, whether the police are, um, they've been militarized in the past couple of decades. I don't know how deep we want to get into the causes and, and, and potential solutions for stuff like that. Um, but one example is, that was just really shocking is a police officer uh, just driving through Minneapolis neighborhood. We were all told to stay home, 8 p.m. curfew. And a cop car just drove up to somebody and fired a, a paint bomb uh, uh, into their uh, onto their porch, um, unprovocated. So th- there's more examples like this, and some that actually have turned uh, very dangerous and potentially deadly. We'll have a list of those in the show notes, so you can kind of take a look and be outraged on your own time for that. Uh, including in New York, where it's a very disturbing video of uh, a, a New York police car plowing down pedestrians. Okay, so trying to be somber, laying out what happened uh, and a bit of a timeline there, but we want to talk a little bit about it, starting off with a note um, that I think, Stephen, you added here, uh, that protests and riots are not the same thing, right? Yeah. Um, thank you for summarizing all of that, Mark. That was a lot of stuff, and I know that was hard. Um, but yeah, I I, uh, I guess, yeah, I can talk from like, my own perspective on it. I am a black man, and so uh basically i've been like raised to mistrust or to not trust police officers um because they have to 
they have been the cause of so much violence in my family and uh, my community for so long. And so I, uh, so people are are understandably upset, right? Like people, th this keeps happening. News, videos, footage of people dying by cops' hands, um, and then the cops not getting affected by it. This keeps happening, and so people are upset, and that's why people are starting riots because the protests weren't working. I don't know. I like people are just people are mad. Mm -hmm. Um. So I I guess I'm like conflicted on it because like I know that people are angry and peaceful protests weren't working, so like they had they had to do something else. Um, and it seems it almost it seems like the violence is actually making some of an impact now because people are like ending their contracts with um, the police department here in Minneapolis. Um, That's right. Yeah, the University of Minnesota was the first to end their contract with the Minneapolis Police Department. Right. Um, and there, there have been others, um, which has right. been a, a, a good move and a bit of a sacrifice for those organizations. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Um, and so, but like there have been multiple killings in Minneapolis alone, and that has not changed things until now. So like but at, at the same time, like there are, the, you know, there are businesses that are being shut down or destroyed because of the riot. And so, um, yeah, the, there's a famous quote from Dr. King, which is what everybody goes to, but it's, it's a really relevant quote, which is that, uh, riots are the language of the unheard. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's very tricky, I believe to, like I said, my, my cousin works at this bike shop. It's a worker owned a community bike shop and they got stuff stolen and that's not right. And there's no, and that's not, doesn't help anybody. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, it's, you understand what, what causes somebody to act out and the, 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 when they really feel that like there, there isn't any other option, there's no rules and they have nowhere to direct their anger and they're not being led by anybody. And so I feel like it can be distracting because Ultimately, the scale of those crimes is so minute compared to the inciting incident. Right. But you have to be careful not to just condone it. But I think you're right. You're saying like it happens because people aren't seeing any other option. They're right. They don't know what else to do. And um, so I think when you think about this, wherever you're sitting, um, decide whether you like support the riots or not. It's like that's that's not really the right framework to to make those kinds of um it's the it's the underlying issue that needs support mm -hmm. yeah yes exactly um yeah so uh this i mean i don't know it's a difficult topic for me to talk about um because i it's just it's been affecting people i know family members i know um for so long I, I guess I'm I'm glad that there's some movement from companies and businesses and universities now, yeah. finally. Um, but this is why people are protesting. It's because it's been a problem that has not been solved and people have not, and we haven't been listened to. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess just listen to us. I don't <laughs> I don't know what else to say about it. Yeah, I can, and I can hear it in your voice. It's like, it's, it can feel like a big, complicated issue, mm -hmm. but it can also be like a, 
there's actually kind of a simple thing here. Um, yeah. I think there's um, some context that I think not a lot of people know about the Minneapolis Police Department. It has quite a long history um, of racism. And it it is it's hard for those of us in Minneapolis to accept. And I think we're all very guilty. I, I could speak for myself of kind of forgetting that that's a, a thing that just lives underneath the surface in the city because we have a very progressive city government um, and we have for a long time. Um, but the police uh, in this city is uh, has a separate political power structure in its police union, and um, they were su- able to successfully uh, lobby the state government to uh, so that the, legally they're not required to have a, a minimum threshold of officers who live in the city. Mm-hmm. So a, a lot of Minneapolis police officers uh, don't live here, and so they don't understand the communities. And this is true in lots of metropolitan areas, but it's been a particular concern here. And um, even the police chief is not necessarily empowered to change There's a lot of uh, longstanding institutional problems with the police department. And it's easy to forget when there isn't an event like this. And I think, Stephen, you kind of put it like this is not something that will go away mm-hmm. uh, once this particular issue or this particular event is resolved. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to talk about it on the show, because when we record, we put our episodes out a week or two after we record. We talk about calendar math and we make a lot of jokes about it, but I do worry a little bit that when this episode does come out that people will start to forget about it. Yeah. And so that's one of the reasons we wanted to make sure that we talked about it in a way that was full. Hopefully that won't be the case. Hopefully this will still be on people's minds. Hopefully there'll be movement in the direction of justice. Yeah. Um, it's a reminder if it's something that's fading from your news feeds. Yeah. Right? It's potentially easy for some people to forget about it, I would add. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yes, for some people, for sure. Uh, I count myself among them. I'm because I'm I'm insulated from that as like I don't have to worry about it. I'm I'm a white man. So I need to make an effort and I need to I need to check that I'm not just because it's not impacting me. And it's, you know, times like this it'll come to the surface, but like that's not that's not good enough for a lot of us. We we need to keep keep it in everyone's minds and their hearts. Right. Um go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, we're, uh, we have some links in the show notes that you can look at, uh, some donation options, um, if you want to support the cause. Uh, specifically, you can donate to George Floyd's, uh, family's, uh, GoFundMe account, um, to help them in this time. If you're having difficulty deciding if there's anything you can do or what you can do, a real simple answer to that is give money to this family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Uh, there's other ways to support the cause. There's uh, um, Minneapolis Defense Fund and there's other groups. And uh, there's an organization called We Love Lake Street, which is um, collecting money to rebuild the storefronts in the neighborhoods affected. Um, but if you really are not sure what, what good you can do, just give money to this man's family, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, don't have any closing remarks. Uh, do you want Ellen? Do you have anything else to add, or do you want to move to the? Uh, I just, I think, just adding a bit more on to, well, adding adding my spin on what Stephen was saying about how these are issues that have been persistent for a long, long time. This kind, this issue, the issue, the issue that is causing unrest, the issue, issue, and issues that are people are protesting about is not it's not just 
one incident of police violence, right? It's these are systemic things that have gone on for decades, generations, Mm -hmm. and it's not okay to just start the news cycle over again and come on to the next topic. It's not like, I don't have answers, but I do know that things need to change. So yeah, the more we talk about it, the more we, the longer we keep it in our conversations and the, yeah, we don't have to have the answers to make progress. Right. Yeah. Um, but we, we all, we all have to do it together. Right? You can't mm-hmm. sit this one out. No. Yeah. That's why we're here talking about it now. Mm-hmm. That was a good closing remark. So we do have other news. Yeah. Um, Steven, Steven, do you want to make this announcement? Uh, yeah. Um, widget satchels out in Japan. So buy it with your yen, people. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, what's the, the name of our publisher? Uh, Mark? Uh, Worker B. Worker B, yes. The publisher. They put it out. Um, and it came out on May 28th. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I like I heard like when they told me, like, oh, this is the release date we picked. I'm like, great. Sounds good. And they sort of kept me updated. And then it a lot of stuff happened last week. And I right. kind of forgot. <laughs> kind of forgot. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, right. This, uh, this, this happened. And so I, I, you know, posted about it a little bit. But um it's been long gestating. Uh, they, you know, they got some some release press and they sent me some clippings and it's been kind of exciting and um, be mostly because I don't have to do anything. I'm just like, <laughs> they're, they're taking care of it. Yeah. Uh, but the best part, of course, is the title they chose for the game, which is not something I asked them to do. Um, and if they had asked me, I might have overruled them, but I'm actually quite <laughs> pleased with what I ended up with. Ellen, you know what this title is, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. With the tildes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's I on it. It's like Widget Satchel Ferret's Treasure. Yep, that's Widget Satchel Tilda Ferret's Treasure Tilda. Tilda, <laughs> like, and those tildes are important. I think. I guess so. Uh, you know, there's sort of a um, uh, aesthetic thing there that doesn't make sense to us as English speakers or as uh, Latin alphabet users, but um, apparently it's not uncommon to see things bracketed not by quotes or parentheses, but by tildes. Mm-hmm. It's just so weird looking to me, but I'm just like, this is so great. Widget Satchel Ferret's Treasure. I'm I'm over myself with how like charming that is and how little I had to do with picking it. <laughs> like I'm as you both know, I'm very anal about little things like this. Like mm-hmm. I'm, you know, it's uh, to my uh, great detriment that I care too much about these little details. But I'm I was so pleased that they didn't ask me. what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's pretty good. It also it means that like uh, now because uh, I think about like the world is so global, right? Everybody is up in everybody's business, and so like there's no such thing as a Final Fantasy three slash six anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, people know that story, like, and so it's kind of neat that let's just imagine a future where there's all these widget satchel spinoffs. There's going to be some wiki article that is like you know, and if we do it, and if we do a, a, a some kind of thing, I, I almost want to use the ferret's treasure subtitle somewhere in a future widget <laughs> satchel installment, yeah. to sort of like make reference to it or whatever, um, or maybe uh, you know, future installments will have different subtitles, and then those will be bracketed until these in Japan, and it. <laughs> I just I just love all that stuff that needs to go into a explainer document, you know, like mm-hmm. that, that gets me going. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you're in Japan and a listener, which we do have listeners in Japan, uh, according to stats, and we've heard from more than one of them, um, you know, you can now uh, get Widget Satchel on your Switch out there. And it'll be coming to to Steam in Japan soon-ish. 
Uh, right now, there's like a region lock on Steam, and we got to work out the details on that. That's like a whole topic that we can talk about in a future episode, like yeah. the mechanics of of region locking in Steam. Really, we could talk about like releasing a game in Japan because it's a difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know I've talked about it on the show a little bit, but like I don't I don't know how useful that information was when I did it. So it would mm. be good to talk to other developers who've had that experience. So um, the, our, uh, our friends at Space Mace who did Joggernauts, uh, that came out in Japan a couple months ago. And um, I, I would love to hear about their experience working with, with their publisher uh, to make that happen. And so maybe we can, yeah, maybe we can uh, Let's do get it. a little bit more information on that. Sounds yeah. Cool. Uh, last piece of meta before we get into the proper topics this episode is um, uh, a new event that um, we at the local IDGA chapter have been putting on uh, while everybody is stuck indoors. Um, Twin Cities Playtest um, is a, a monthly playtest event, um, which is something we've had in 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 our, our community for a long, long time. It's been incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. Stephen, you have helped run that for a long yeah. time, um, yep. and everybody is indebted to your efforts. Um, <laughs> but you know, in this time when we're all stuck indoors, we couldn't put on an event like that, right? You mm-hmm. couldn't get everyone together in, in, a, in a single place to do it, right? And so um, I think we've all wondered how we can make this happen, especially for local multiplayer games. Um, it's a particular error area of concern. And so at, at the IDGA, um, uh, Peter Yang, who's a, a fellow uh, board member uh, and a, a friend of the show and a friend of all yours, um, even if you don't know it yet, um, <laughs> he, uh, he and I put together um, uh, an event. And the, what we decided to do was, uh, originally we were thinking, okay, let's maybe we can just have a, a, a hub where people can uh, play uh, uh, developers can just uh, network with players and arrange their own time to um, to you know share builds and 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 stream to each other so that they can do a, a look like playtest sessions. And I think we ended up saying like, well, that's great, and we can maybe facilitate that, but I think we can do better. And so um, one of the things that uh, we had been talking about is using a, a tool called Parsec, which um, for people who don't know it um, is a way to um, stream. It's sort of a desktop sharing app, but it's really meant for games. Um, have you both used it? Yeah, mm-hmm. I've used it before. It, it's it's one of those things where if you've heard of it, you know, you wonder why not everyone's heard of it. And uh, it's really good technology. And in fact, they're moving into more uh, a traditional desktop sharing because it's incredibly low latency, and it's a way for people to do like um, you know uh, live coding. And uh, especially now in this time uh, where everybody is working remotely, it's a way for people to share their desktop, which has always been something that's worked pretty well. Lots of great tools made by lots of great companies. But it's there's always a little bit of a detriment. But the, the way the Parsec technology is really, really good. And uh, so uh, because it was designed for games. Cool. And so it's a, it's really a good way to play local multiplayer games. You just you host uh, your game. And then when you, people sign in in their Parsec window, they see your stream of your game. And then you get their gamepad input. It's a relatively simple idea. And so I set up a server in my apartment. Um, <laughs> I call it a server, but it's just an extra PC. Um, I used to do a a VR night event every month. And uh, so I had a bunch of extra PCs laying around that were like, you know, that could run most things, right? The sort of, they're all minimum spec VR machines mm-hmm. um, or the, the two that I, that I was using and I did no function for them. So I set one up in the corner of my office and just set it as a, as a, as a, a host for this. I could do this on my normal workstation, but it was nice to have it as a separate device so that I could also do the other part of this, which is um, we're streaming this on Twitch. So the way it works is that we have developers sign up. They send me their builds, so we don't have to do a bunch of IT work on a bunch of different people's computers. And if somebody has a concern about it's an unfinished build, I don't want it out in the wild, um, which is, I think, something we're all kind of over. But in case that's a concern, yeah. we centralize it in one place. 
And then uh, we set up a, a live stream. Peter and I serve as the MCs. And we, we just have an, a, a night of playtests where anybody on the stream can say, hey, I want to play. And then we make sure we just ask them to sign up for a Parsec account. And then they send us their uh, username. We grant them access to the game. And then in Discord, we have them join a voice chat room. And then their voice goes live on the stream. So we can have developers and players talking to each other and with very low uh, barrier of entry to either developers or players. So I'm getting into the details about this because I think this is a model that I think other people can use. Yeah. So I'll, I'll maybe try to write up a document that describes this. We, we've done, we did one test uh, event where we play tested a, a couple of games over the course of a night and uh, we didn't do a lot of uh, promotion for the event, uh, but we had a dozen or so uh, viewers and we had a couple people, uh, 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 developers sign in. And I think starting next month, we're going to be promoting this as an official IDGA event. To, so hopefully it will be something that is good for developers, good for players, and hopefully it should make for a good stream as well for mm. people interested in, in, in the playtesting process. Uh, we're going to definitely try to get some more uh, uh, local multiplayer games and really test out how how good this latency is. And uh, we definitely want to get uh, Fingens in there, Stephen. Oh, oh. Okay, because <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good test, I think, uh, for local multiplayer. Yeah, that's it's, true. It's not so um, it's not as precise as a fighting game, but uh, it's one uh, that uh, where lag will cause noticeable uh, problems. We've been uh, playtesting Vengeance in in house uh, through Parsec, mm -hmm. and it's been pretty. Mm. Cool. Oh, good, good. Um, so yeah, that's uh, happening um, third uh, Wednesdays of every month. Mm -hmm. um, is, is our schedule. Uh, IDGA events are all on Twitch now and they're on Wednesdays, second, third, and fourth Wednesdays of the month. So I'll put that schedule in there. But we're definitely, we've moved all our stuff on Twitch. We uh, started up a Discord so that people could could join in on, on voice chat uh, on the stream. And we're, we're doing a lot of work there and we all, we sort of half know what we're doing. Um, so <laughs> so uh, if uh, we could always use some um, people that volunteers to help, uh, you know, manage um, uh, Twitch chat, manage the Discord, um, and I, I mean, just be around to help. Um, and if you've got advice or you have experience, uh, we could definitely use some help. But I'm, I'm really proud of this this event, and I hope it does uh, really well. But if it just helps a couple of devs and a couple of players, um, then that will be worth the effort. And uh, once this, once we can all go back outside, uh, we'll see if we can keep this event going because I think it's worthwhile, even in a time uh, where we uh, we can actually stand around and and uh, hang out together. Yeah. Uh... That's an excellent transition, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm glad there was some movement in the Twin Cities playtest. Mm -hmm. uh, because now animation. Uh, <laughs> oh, you were so close. <laughs> I know, I came up halfway through. <laughs> I, how could you do this? Like, I'm so animated about the playtesting. <laughs> ah, there we go. Uh, Steve and she went up to you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right, let's talk about animation. Um, this is going to be one of those topics where I just rattle off a lot of like 101s and miss some important elements of it that you'll maybe want to uh, write into the show about. Uh, Please do, because he will miss some. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely going to. Um, but uh, I want to talk a little bit about it because it's one of those things, it's, um, it's one of those cross-disciplinary things that um, I'm always concerned about in game design. I think a lot of times uh, we forget that game development, even though it contains many different skills, actually is a lot of those skills are are full disciplines unto their own. Mm -hmm. right? Because we can do a lot of them without having to know the full scale of it, we can kind of forget that there's actually a lot more to know and a lot more to learn and that to be better at it. Yeah. Um, 
And so I thought I'd just go over a little bit of this and, uh, and certainly how I've used it in my work. And you guys can talk about it, how you've used it in yours and uh, how you've seen it in games. Because um, for indie devs, there's those two things you got to balance, right? You got to balance like proficiency and, uh, and polish with like uh, uh, efficiency and like actually uh, uh, and scope, right? Yep. And yep. animation is one where you can be like, you can make an incredible game without a ton of animation that looks fantastic. Or you could do the opposite. You can make a game that is just smooth and rich and looks fantastic, but then you didn't have any time to put it into the mechanics or your animation limits what you're able to do. And yeah. um, so we'll talk a little bit about those struggles, but let's just do a little bit of basics. Um, the different types of animation you see in games. Um, and as a motion graphics artist in a previous career, this also applies a lot to the work I would do there, which is balancing between like frame by frame animation. So just traditional cartoon style animation. And then what we call keyframe animation, where you have you sort of pose a model uh, like a, a skeleton or a series of properties, and yeah. then you have keyframes that are at different times, and then you have animators, software animators that animate between those properties. So you'll see this a lot of times. You know, a, a skeletal animation is the most common use of this in two D and in three D. Mm. Another uh, thing that's been showing up a lot more is certainly in AAA games, but in, in indie as well because the tools are a lot easier. And it's not as scary as you might think. Is procedural animation, so um, reading the state of the world and then provide and then having a, an algorithm determine animation properties. So not relying necessarily on keyframes, but relying on um, sort of uh, uh, functions, ins and outs, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so you see this a lot with um, in AAA games where I mean, not not even just AAA games, but a lot of 3D games where you'll see a character's feet will match the ground uh, 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 plane, right? Yeah, there's a little bit of a tilt or something like that, and um, you see this a lot in games that have climbing systems, uh, where where characters will you know rock climb their way through uh, a game like Assassin's Creed or Lara Croft or or, or um, a Tomb Raider or Uncharted stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, also, a really common one you see that you can actually learn yourself is a great tutorials for these are animating spiders. Um, oh, <laughs> by, you you just animate the body of a spider moving through space like it's just X Y Z coordinates. Oh, and you have its and then you have its feet procedurally walk across uh, any uh, any kind of terrain and there's a bunch of great tutorials we'll, we'll try to find one and put it in the show notes um for how you can and then you understand really the power of of a, a procedural animation system and then of course you'll see um a lot of the examples where this it, of course is it bl it mixes with other animation types right uh where keyframe animation um or uh, or skeletal animation yeah or or you know a manual animation also so you'll see it in, in cutscenes a lot where you'll see cutscenes are very manually animated, like the, the a lot of them will be keyframe generated, but they'll have many more keyframes. Mm -hmm. um, and but then also they will use procedural systems to save themselves time. Yeah, that makes sense. That's good. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask, like, uh, do you have experience with procedural animations yourself? A little bit, and a lot okay. of this is actually in the motion graphics stuff that I've done. So uh, After Effects is the tool I use for motion graphics for video productions, and a lot of times it is actually just faster to write a little piece of JavaScript. In After Effects, it has mm. it has a, 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 a call it an expression engine. Um, it's a very crude sort of like a, um, a, a scripting uh, a language based in JavaScript, um, which I don't love. Um, mm. That where you can you can you can take inputs and outputs. So a lot of times I will have um, you know thirty layers of an animation, and I don't want to animate each one of them independently, but I want them to move a little differently. So I can't give them all the same properties. So I'll anchor a bunch of objects to other. I'm thinking very generically, but. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, you'll anchor a bunch of objects to other objects so that they will sort of move in the same space, but then you want them to sort of trail or wiggle or do some sort of behavior. So I'll write code that wiggles a property or I'll write code that, that, that says if, if this object is near to this other object, 
keep this amount or add this amount to the X value or the Y value. And I could do all that manually. And because it's a, a piece of video, there isn't necessarily a reason why I need to have infinite possibilities in a procedural system, mm-hmm. but it can save me three days of work. And that's one thing that I've always appreciated about knowing how to code uh, while doing video productions is that I can find my way to working faster. Uh, and also you can do a lot more um, uh, when you tweak with code driven animation, you can do a lot more uh, prototyping and testing uh, yeah. because you don't have to spend three days uh, getting a system right just to, or an animation style right just to see if it looks good. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of games, I don't have a lot, partly because uh, my, as a game artist, my background has more of a linear path from my time as a traditional animator. And so I'm much more interested in using a system of sprite sheets. Ah, okay, so this yeah. is another system where um, uh, you'll see that this is a widget satchel has quite a lot of this. Um, there are mixes of systems, and we can talk about that. Where and uh, pixel art games, uh, you know, uh, of course, and uh, classic uh, retro games. Uh, this is a lot of what they did. Yeah, you just animated each action frame by frame, and then you produced each frame, um, and then the game would just display each frame as, as it was. So it was kind of the simplest idea of animating a character. That's still very common, and it's still something that looks a lot better than skeletal animation. Sometimes I do tend to see a lot of Unity tutorials that talk about two D animation. And they tend to animate sort of cartoon style characters in 2D using skeletal systems. Yeah. And it doesn't look great. And, and it, I always feel like, but you know what? In order for it to look better than that, you have to have a discipline in animation. Right. And it's not easy. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it takes 10 times as long to do. So it's one of those things where a lot of the tools can get you to the finish line a lot faster, but sometimes it's worth it to be a little bit more going uh, have a little bit more effort going on yeah and and sometimes you can't right so um you'll see this in a lot in games where even in triple a games you'll see animations that just don't happen like uh there's tons of games where you are like you know a million polygon character with incredible shaders and procedural uh animation all over the place and then you pick up a a loot item and then just a flash of particles flies and then the item disappears (laughs) yeah and like it's just like it's part of the language of games right we talked about this in a previous episode where animation um we have a lot of the tools now to do a lot more, but there's a sort of a understanding of the language of games that covers a lot of what we don't have to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as someone who comes from a more traditional video and animation background, sometimes I wonder, like, we need to, I, I would love to break that spell over people because it, it, I think for, for non-gamers who approach AAA games that are high production, multi-million dollar projects and see those little things that they just didn't do, it, it, can, it can make games look kind of silly and cheap. Yeah, in a way that we don't, we can't recognize always as game developers. I think, I think you're, I think you're right. Um, because like I, I noticed that in Ghost of Tsushima at their mm-hmm. their uh like trailer thing when they showed a bunch of gameplay and stuff, and that game looks amazing uh, and looks very detailed. But like whenever I can't remember the name, the main character's name, whenever the main character would like walk over a collectible, they'd press a button mm-hmm. and then you'd instantly collect it. And I was like, this yeah. is weird. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But like on the other side of the spectrum, I I was watching somebody play um The Last of Us. And um when uh oh I can't remember the name of that character's either. <laughs> when the main when the main character would collect something, he like did an animation, but it looked like he was like grabbing weird. It was like Right, it was like ah! it was like a mime it was like miming it. Right? Yeah, yeah. He didn't like literally grab it. He would like ah. make move as though he was grabbing something, but it wasn't anywhere near what he was grabbing. And it just looked yeah, really s- janky. <laughs> Y'all can't see me while I'm doing this. People should see what Steven is doing on the video call. Just to put the <laughs> mental image of your mind, it's like Steven has removed his elbows 
and is a Lego character who's trying to grab something in front of him. Yeah, yeah, basically, it's yeah, that's what I'm pretty saying. good. <laughs> right, it's this weird, and you almost wonder, like, is it better to just not have an animation at all, mm. or or do you want that thing where a character like swoops their hand across their their knee or something? Yeah, uh, because because you don't want to like because it's it's a complicated system. Right. If you want to have a character pick up an item in a certain range of the character, which might be behind them or, you know, just in terms of gameplay accessibility, you don't mm-hmm. want someone to line up exactly to a thing. That's super annoying. Yeah. And so it's sometimes just easier just to do a canned animation yeah. um, and then give the impression. But then, then you have the richly procedural animated uh, wall climbing in the same game. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't treat those as uh, discordant, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And I don't know that we should, like, I wish we did. But at the same time, like that, it's a huge ask, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think what I think a lesson here for for especially for indie developers is to, if you spend a ton of time on one system, and then the other systems don't get the same love, people will notice the difference. Yeah. So sometimes it's actually a better idea to limit yourself in some ways so as not to put expectations on other things that you don't have the capacity. Yeah. To do. That's that's a real bummer of a piece of advice, I think. But like it's the the thing I'm always harping on this whole holistic sense of yeah. your game. No, I think um, that's good advice. Have it all live together, you know. Well, I was just thinking about um, you know, the the example of grabbing things, uh, and then also the example of climbing things and how these are treated differently in certain games. And I was actually just thinking about how Breath of the Wild treats those things. The first oh, time yeah. you yeah, the first time you pick up an object in Breath of the Wild, it's a big deal if it's like the first object you've ever encountered of this type you get like yeah. a you get this animation that like focuses on the object and it's kind of static so you don't need to move um but then every other time you encounter that object like if it's an apple or whatever it just kind of pops up and it doesn't slow you down it just mm, says yeah. you've got an apple and that's actually kind of a really cool way of dealing with that because then you don't have to have like the procedural element of um how this character picks up all these different objects but you still like have made it clear that this sound means you've acquired this in your inventory. Mm-hmm. But there's also climbing in that game, so now yeah, I, yeah. now I want to play it again even more and go look at these <laughs> systems. Well, we do this in Widget Satchel where when you pick up widgets or a pair of socks, um, we don't have an animation for stuffing it in your satchel. We, the the object just particles spring from it. And then over the next couple frames, it floats into it. It doesn't collect automatically. Mm-hmm. And then once it hits the satchel, the satchel kind of pops as if it's being like filled with something. So it is um, representative, mm-hmm. right? And and part of that was an effort to not have to do a ton of animation. Right. right. And so there's no game not guilty of this. Yeah. Can you imagine having to animate a tiny ferret paw grabbing onto a sock and stuffing <laughs> it into a satchel? Yeah. That's a lot of work. One of the things with, in Widget Satchel is interesting is like we the language of games are that when you collect a coin, it weighs nothing. It yeah. just adds to a point total. The Widget Satchel confounds that by saying that, no, when you collect these things, it has mechanical consequences. Mm-hmm. And and even that we're like 90% authentic on, right? Like it, there's certain things we don't. Uh, yeah. we, we don't uh, we don't for, we don't we don't crush the player under a, 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 a too much realism. Right. Um, uh, but at the same time, we still have those language of games, which is that. Um, no one has ever seen Mario touch a coin, right? Or h- handle a coin. Yeah. Right. And it, like, it's always, it always just kind of like it, it's always a, a collision, uh, a behavior. Yeah. And, uh, I think for people who don't play a lot of games, like, even though that's been true for so long, that can still feel a little bit weird and alien. Yeah. Um, hmm. but then what, there's not a solution to like, there's an effort I think you need to make to 
to uh, notice when the language of games is preventing you from doing something you have the capability of doing. Mm -hmm. But also, you do want to take advantage of the times when the language of games will save you some time. And and you kind of have to make those decisions yourself. Yeah. Because, yeah, there aren't, there aren't even, like, snooty games critics who care about this, frankly. <laughs> it's <So> true. <laughs> it's kind of, it is, it, like, I, I'm, I'm of two minds about it. Like, I really want a lot of people to care about it. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't know. Nobody cares about it. So <laughs> maybe it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Witches Hatchel has a lot of sprite sheet animation. So right. uh, Sprocket is manu uh, animated manually. But one of the reasons why in early games you couldn't uh, attack and walk at the same time is because there is, if you play a lot of NES games, when you attack, you stop in your tracks mm -hmm. and swing your sword. And that that's another language of games thing, at least in the early era. Um, that was basically because you didn't have the sp enough sprites to do both. Yeah. Right? You so you did see some games have split the character top and bottom, so the uh, the legs would could animate while the top, you know, but that required a lot more pixels than was usually allocated uh, to games. I think we're well past that being a, a necessity. But sometimes I think well, when a lot of people animate their first pixel art game, they'll they'll come across that and be like, oh wait, how do I handle this when the character is doing multiple things? And one of the things we did in Witch's Satchel is each part of Sprocket's body is a separate object. And the anchor point, like the shoulder or the satchel itself, is uh, animated using keyframes. Mm. Um, but the body is is frame by frame animated traditionally, and then brought in as a sprite sheet. And so in uh, Unity, which is where we, how we built it, I took those two types of systems and I kind of blended them. So uh, it should appear as if it's all relatively hand animated. I, I don't know if uh, I think a, a trained eye or even a a almost trained eye can spot that it's not all the way that. Yeah. But when you swing the wrench, that is not animated by a keyframe. Only the position of the arm is animated by keyframe. The, the wrench swing is itself an independent frame-by-frame -frame animation that is attached to the body of Sprocket, which it, it, Sprocket's frame-by-frame -frame animated. So or, uh, so where Sprocket's shoulder is, is not known by Unity. Like Unity mm -hmm. has no idea where that point is. So I had to manually keyframe the anchor point of the arm in every run, roll, uh, jump animations so that you could swing the wrench at any time. Yeah. Um, that would then run a separate, a smaller. So it can get kind of complicated, but the more you know about these techniques, the more you're able to mix them successfully. Mm -hmm. And that's something like, you know, you need to be able to change your socks in Widget Satchel. And so rather than animate the feet uh, 30 times, <laughs> yeah. um, I just animated them once. And then we decided that the the socks would not, deform or animate frame by frame we just had to move them around in xy space and rotate them which is a which is a, a disappointment i wanted to be i wanted to be more expressive with that animation but it required in order to have the functionality of swapping uh socks it made it uh the, that would animate the actual feet using a, a keyframe animation and then what that did is that gave it gave it a character a kind of a stilted kind of silly walk kind of property because it's sort of like uh, the you know the the knees don't bend and the the feet don't deform as they touch the ground and so it has a quality so that quality is then also brought into some of the frame by frame animation so that it all looks like it's part of the same set of choices yeah and this is one of the things that Stephen you've said a lot about game design which is every choice you make will impact other choices yeah right mm -hmm. uh, and that's this, it's the same thing here and you'll see this a lot in games that you can tell like oh that's a hand hand by hand. Or a frame by frame keyframes. Some you'll identify the animation system, but yeah. then you'll see where oh, but I can see the character rotating to align with the panel I just touched, and their feet aren't moving. 
right? Yeah. And you can sort of see where those things don't uh, blend well together. And so you do have to do a lot of thinking. And you also have to know when it's okay to just let it sizzle against itself. Well, yeah, because I think, I think a lot of players kind of like, I guess like you were saying, there's a language of games that people understand. And I think a lot of players have, yeah. uh, what's the word? Uh, they're pretty lenient towards some animations. As long as yes. it gets the point across well enough. Like, yes. uh, uh, yeah. So for a rhythm rumble, like, you know, it's a fighting game. And so the animations are very important. Um, yeah. because like players need to feel the impact of attacks and they need to feel mm -hmm. like they need to understand like this has a wind up and when it, when the wind up ends and when the attack actually comes out and all of those things. And originally when we, when we started working on a project, the artist that, uh, we're working with did not really do animations in that way. Um, she was more familiar with how, not keyframes, I guess, but like the, mm -hmm. the, well, or no keyframes. Yeah. Um, the, she was more familiar with the keyframe system that's in Unity. And so, like, yeah. that's how a lot of, or, but like, um, I felt like I think you would have been able to get more out of it if we used uh, a sprite sheet to animate things, to animate mm -hmm. the character's movement. And so we use a combination of the two to get some um, actions, or some actions to feel more impactful at certain points um, in, yeah, in the yeah. fight and stuff. Yeah, and we could, we'll talk about like those sort of traditional animation techniques to communicate behavior and stuff like that. But I, I want to hear from you, Ellen. Because the work that you do uh, in your day job, a lot of the e-learning stuff you do, that has a lot of different requirements. It's not the same as you're not anim you're not necessarily required to animate uh, character models yeah. as often, right? Correct. Um, we don't really have to, and then the reason before the reason for that is because uh, first of all, budgets are usually really tight, um, mm. and so everything that you do needs to be very directly or should be very directly. Um, impactful or directly related to the performance outcome so okay. the right the purpose of game base the purpose of game-based learning isn't to uh entertain or right. it's it's not a, it's not art it's a tool in a sense to to achieve a behavior outcome and the drivers behind having really great animation are to are, are generally just not as applicable uh, i think in many contexts where game-based learning is currently used. I think as the industry expands, that's going to change. You know, if you're, tr if you're trying to use game-based learning to help somebody learn how to do a sale, having super accurate, like, animation to the point where you, your reflexes are spot on, are, it's not important. Unless, yeah, right. like, you're, you're making a sale by beating someone in a video game, I guess. I don't... <laughs> yeah. Which would be cool. Like, mm. if that's how you make sales... Let's have you on the show because I want to hear about that. Um, <laughs> but generally, you're not. That's not like mm -hmm. having lightning fast reflexes are are not going to be part of like right. sales or well, what you what you whatever. do need is you need um, you need uh, proper like UX animations, so mm -hmm. menus, transitions, and in cases where you do have uh, sort of character representation, uh, more traditional animation things apply. Like if you have a character speaking, then you want to do like traditional mouth animation and stuff like that. I used to do mm -hmm. some flash projects like over a decade ago that were sort of e-learning. And I it, just getting anybody to care about that stuff was very difficult mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of it was just taking this, this text tree and trying to just put it on a screen yeah. in a way that I, that you must be seeing a lot. And it must be difficult to get, because people can be very turned off by like, a janky animation just between panels or something. Yes. Yeah. yeah and, yep. And so I think, I think a lot of the effort is kind of just like, okay, how does this, how does this look not janky? Does, does that make sense? Like, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Far, so that it doesn't distract from the, 
the thing that people are supposed to be practicing. Yeah. And so that's why, you know, video is a great way for people to use that, although it, it can be really tough to set up video shoots um, to get the content that you need. You know, it's it, that's also changing. I mean, like I said, it's changing. And I think it's mm-hmm. going to be interesting to see. I think you'll see a lot of the progress in game based learning animation made in simulations. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So like flight simulators are the one that have been used as an example for yeah. years and years. But beyond that, I mean, VR is being used for all sorts of things and some very high level, like complicated skills that do require a lot of physical dexterity and reflexes like surgery. Yeah, right, right. Like uh, HoloLens is being used for a lot of that stuff, too, Mm -hmm. like for training, but also for actual um, maybe not in surgery as much, but in like manufacturing Mm -hmm. and and manufacturing. uh, Yeah. You had to be ac- very, very, very accurate. Um, and you can't accurate and not, it's not off, it's not always okay to be approximate either. And I think that's, yeah. that's an interesting challenge because in a, in an entertainment game, like you, we were just saying, like there are things you can approximate, uh, and it's fine as long as you've done it in a way that is stylistically consistent and the, the player can understand it and it's like contributes to the fun. Um, then you can, you can do stuff that's approximate in like simulation spaces sometimes approximate just is, it really isn't good enough yeah right right so fun fun thing to keep an eye on <laughs> um yeah and i think it's that kind of brings into the sort of the the final part of this topic which is just some general techniques for animation if you're new to it and i think a lot of game developers um uh they're being they're forced to engage in a discipline they're not trained for yeah and i think a lot of game developers have a um, they have a willingness and a capacity to learn how to do something they're not trained for. And I think that's one of the things that makes it, that makes game developers amazing. Mm-hmm. And like, you, like, it's like, it doesn't matter if you're bad at it, you can still do it like, and, and, and do it to a point that is acceptable and, and, uh, and incredible in a lot yeah, of ways. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm always so as someone who is sort of very multidisciplinary focused, and I'm always very impressed with people who tr- try things they've never done before and and get even a little bit of it like you know what i mean like they mm-hmm. do it wrong and it still works like i i just i have such admiration for people who make that attempt who are who are brave enough to do that and uh but at the same time um it doesn't hurt to know a little bit of the background on on some of these things so that you don't have to learn this stuff uh like you don't have to struggle through it to learn it right, right. you can you can uh, uh check out what other people have done you don't have to reinvent the wheel um so uh, a couple of sort of just simple sort of to do or um best practices, I guess, um, is a lot about people tend to, when they animate something, think about a frame rate, right? So in film, frame rate 24 frames a second, as people are aware, uh, games generally at 60 frames a second, um, even with indie titles, although 30, I suppose, for high productions that require a lot of processing per frame. So 30 or 60. Um, and when you animate a movement, it can, if you're very drilled down onto a specific piece of animation, it can be very tempting to give it a lot of detail and a lot of frames, a lot of activity, when sometimes you don't need that much. You can animate something in three frames to get a sense of motion and movement. Yeah. Even if you have seven frames to work with, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and it, it, this is very much a note when you see it and kind of the more you do it, the more you'll be good at it. But um, one of the things that's funny, and again, it's language of games, is you see a lot of like fighting game stance animations, right? This is people on Twitter make fun of this a lot where that's sort of like idle animation. It's like, that's not how people move. 
And part of it is a, is an instinct to tell the player that the gate, that the character is not frozen. Mm-hmm. Right. Because when you have so few pixels to work with, uh, like a, a normal amount of jostling wouldn't move you even a pixel. Right. And so it became more necessary to exaggerate movement to show that movement was happening and also to not to convince the player that you put some effort into it. Yeah. Sometimes. Uh, and that's, you know, in fighting games, it's part of the language of games. You kind of still want to keep doing that. Right. right. Um, uh, and, you know, there's probably a lot of discu- I don't know if there is a lot of discussion in the fighting community about that kind of thing. But uh, no, we're only, mainly focused on whether or not the, the hitbox right, is right. accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are things you've all agreed to care about, and that will never change. Right? <laughs> yeah. Does it look good when I kick it? Good. Okay. <laughs> um, but this is one of the things I do a lot in in uh, in UI animation. Like, man, things bounce and wiggle and shine and and uh, and 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 screen shake, and there's just so much animation in UI. Uh-huh. And it's just in just is my opinion now because I think people's uh, you know the people's opinions vary yeah. um maybe it's a minority opinion but like i think there's just a lot way too much of it all the time you know you don't need to smoothly animate everything and i don't have a lot of like this is what you should do instead but a lot of times um you people don't see things in context so you'll animate a button like a button highlight and you'll have like a, a like a glowing highlight or something or an animation from unselected to selected and people will put a lot of effort into making it look really rich and sometimes you just need three frames or sometimes you need no frames of it. You just snap to it or whatever. Um, and because a lot of that has to do with the user experience of it. Like, what are they getting out of it? Like, if your game is, um, you know, uh, uh, like uh, it's like a sci-fi futuristic game about some, you know, a post-apocalyptic dystopia. Like, sometimes you you don't, you want to like put a bunch of like um, screen flicker effects to make it look like all the machines are broken down and you bring that into the main menus. But you can really go overkill on some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in, in, and, and so you tend to sort of step into it by wanting to have it feel a certain way. And then it feels only that way to the extreme. Mm-hmm. And it does a disservice to the other things it needs to do. Yeah. So I feel pretty strongly about that. Um, that said, it's not like it hasn't sunk a lot of games. But it's one of those things that I think keeps a lot of games from having animation that's good versus useful. Yeah. Right? Um, you can have really good animation, but it's not the right thing for it and a lot of times you can you you end up like doing a lot of work and then you pair it back and that feels like you're wasting your time but sometimes you need to do that to sort of see where you're going yeah well i yeah I, i've noticed that well i guess i haven't noticed the ui thing so much so but sometimes it does like obscure the menus in a way that you know makes things unclear so i think that like yeah. <clears throat> i think it's important to make sure that like your ui you know matches what you're going for but not too much mm-hmm. you don't want it to yeah you don't want it to feel like you don't want it to like obscure what you're trying to do. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I have I have also noticed that like I guess just outside of UI, I I agree with your point earlier that like sometimes less can be more in, in terms of animation. Like when we were yeah. working on some some of the animations for um, uh, for Rhythm Rumble, uh, like we were originally convinced that like we needed to add more frames in order to make the movement more smooth. But like mm-hmm. I think a lot of people's brains will like fill in the work for you if you give them that benefit so like if you just have some um i can't remember what they 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 call it but like if you just have like core frames Mm -hmm. for the animation to go through and then like maybe add a few frames in between like people will understand that like you're throwing a punch even if it's like three frames of animation it's like persistence of vision right Mm -hmm. so um and fighting games in particular because you need those like snap animations so that players can see which frames are the important ones? Yeah. Right? 
And then, and then, so you can hold on that for a little longer, even though the, the, what the player reads is a smoother animation that they're creating in their mind, yeah. that they know where the apex of the animation is because the game kind of gave it to you a couple of times. Yeah. With it, right. And so this is really common in, in traditional animation uh, that has a, a lower frame rate. Um, you have things like uh, called smear frames. Yeah. Um, where you have two, in order to show something going fast, uh, you can go from, you know, uh, uh, it's going so fast, it's faster than the frame rate. Well, the way to demonstrate that in a way that makes sense to a, to a player or to a viewer is to have a frame that rather than having an in-between that is just a position in between point A and point B, the, the frame in between can be a, a, almost like a smearing blend, almost as if just like you're smearing a paint canvas, right? Yeah. You'll see this in traditional anim- old school animation a lot where somebody's arm will turn into a, 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 a instead of a, a stick, it'll be like a shape of a pie wedge as it goes from one position to another. And it'll feel in freeze frame. It looks <laughs> stupid, like, <laughs> but it, it, it services the understanding that that uh, of, of smooth motion it, it serves a lot of, of what like motion blur does in traditional yeah. film and so video games it's very difficult because uh, technologically it's difficult to achieve similar effects without being much more deliberate uh motion blur in uh, uh high-end 3d games is is av- is available it's used but it also uh, requires a look ahead so you need to know what the next position is and so it, it introduces a set of a, a, a required amount of lag to the visual experience. Um, and there's only so much players can tolerate before it starts being impacting mm-hmm. gameplay. So there's a lot of those details. And I think people, the more they realize that these are problems that exist, the quicker they'll be able to yeah. tackle them. Um, but it can be very easy to not know it's right. a problem uh, when you're working, um, when you do animation and not know why your animation looks different from something else when yours has like seven frames of smooth motion versus another one that just has three frames of more deliberate uh, motion, yeah. right? Um, and so if you're not, you know, if you're, if you're just hacking away at your, your solo project and you don't have the capacity to become an expert animator, that's okay. As long as you just know the consequences and can either adapt other strategies to compensate or just, or accept, um, the limitations just with full understanding of what that means. And maybe you have to tweak gameplay systems or visual, other visual elements to compensate for what be a a lack of like uh, visual comp, uh, comprehension on the the part Mm. of the player. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As with all topics, there's just a lot to think about. <laughs> I mean, animation is a huge topic. We we all need service. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And there's a whole other topic that we have here at the end of the list, which is like the uh, we're talking a little bit with the fighting games, like uh, what you see yeah. versus what the game sees, mm-hmm. right? Like hitboxes and collisions and stuff like that. And I feel like it's like a whole other topic that we can get to yeah. maybe in a future episode. Um, but I would like to hear from listeners uh, who have approached it because, you know, there are traditional game artists who do nothing but think about animation. And if you've got one of those on your team, you're in good shape. But mm-hmm. we don't all have one of those on our team. Um, so I'd love to hear about people's experiences um, and the, the tips that they've learned, either as someone who is coming to this field, uh, not knowing much or uh, came to games from animation yeah. the way I did. I'd also like to hear from listeners and also maybe from you, Stephen and Mark, uh, you know, if you're a total total new person or you're new to one of these methods, where are some places you can go to learn about uh, this, you know, a particular style of animation and maybe mm-hmm. what are some tools that you can work into your workflow to, to do that kind of thing? Yeah, there's, um, there's a famous book that's a little out of date now, but it has a lot of animation on 101s uh, called the Animator's Toolkit. Um, and I'll put a link to that. Uh, it's one of those like Ur texts 
that a lot of traditional animators use, but it's written in a way that's pretty easy for the layperson to understand. Um, so it's just it's it's halfway between a textbook uh, and a coffee table book, so it's it's pretty digestible, uh, and it has a lot of those techniques of like squash and stretch and and smear frames and how frame rate and persistence of vision and all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, it, it's it's meant for sort of cartoon animators, um, but it applies to all styles. So that's a good resource. And yeah, we yeah. have to dig up some links uh, specifically related to yeah, games as well. Hey, so did you know you can review our podcast? I knew that. And we won't, we won't, we won't shut up about that. Oh, (laughs) of course I know it. Gosh, this is what comes from being a new host. You don't know what's been, you don't know everything that's been said before. So you say things like, have you heard of Twitter? And do you know you can review podcasts? I mean, but why would we keep saying it? I feel like once is enough for listeners, right? <laughs> As the learning design professional, I can tell you <laughs> once is never enough. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's important for us to keep mentioning it because uh, we have this really cool song that we like to play during these segments. And so we need to have Absolutely. words to put over it. Um, <laughs> but also because reviews help the show get noticed, especially when you write reviews that are nice, like this one. Nice Games Club is a great project for game dev junkies. That's what the review is titled, mostly. This show is great for those interested in game development. Also, sound quality is good. Well done, guys. Thanks, Chris, at Evergreen Games. (laughs) I hope that the sound quality is still good. (laughs) I hope it's still good. (laughs) Yeah, in this new era of recording remotely, we are a little nervous that maybe it dipped a bit, Mm -hmm. but we haven't heard any complaints, so... Yeah, I'm... Yep, I'm. Yeah, I'm on eggshells constantly with this mic. I'm. I can't touch my mic right now. That's the rule. So if it's still good, there's a lot of yes. sacrifice that goes into that. Okay. Anyway, we're yeah. Reviews help the show get noticed and help us get more ideas and listeners. You know, ideas for topics that come from our listeners. And so, if you'd like to send a review, post it up there, and we might read your message on the show. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Okay. Uh, okay. Steven, you yes. can just take it whenever you're ready. Uh, man, I'm I don't know how to transition <laughs> to this topic either. Uh, uh play uh you we all we can't we got to stop all trying to be Martha. We're never going to be as good it's as true. Martha. We're not. It's it's embarrassing. <laughs> That's very accurate. Okay, so my topic what we that? need is we need to send we need to send our our list of topics to Martha. And then have her just pre-record a bunch of transitions. <laughs> the problem with that is we're not super on the ball with what order we're doing our topics in. So yeah. maybe that's not a thing we can that, do. Yeah. Listeners, if you miss Martha's transitions as much as we do, uh, bully us into doing <laughs> yes. something about Don't it. Don't we have right? that yeah. transition thing that Martha's left us? Oh, that's right. We do. I'll put that. I'll edit that in so yeah. listeners will hear it now. 
Yeah, you know that topic. It's time for the next one. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, so yes, my topic is establishing a sense of place, which is like a sentence instead of a topic. But um, I guess I wanted to like differentiate this from world building specifically because like it, 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 it is like an aspect of world building, but it's more about like making the place feel like an actual place that things can live in. Um, instead of, you know, mm-hmm. like, like the overarching lore of a, a world. Um, and so I mm-hmm. wanted to talk about that with y'all because like, I don't know, I, I, I've been thinking about that a little bit with, uh, with Rhythm Rumble very slightly because the narrative isn't super important, but also like with Fingence and other games, like we did this for Widget Set, right? Like we have, well, you did this mainly, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> It was an effort, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we put some effort in it, so it made it feel like there was an actual thing. There was a reason for all of these things. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I think, like, one one thing that has helped me with, like, trying to understand what, like, a world is and how people live in it is, like, establishing a set of rules that, like, people in this world live by. So, like, for example, if you're, mm-hmm. like, uh, making this uh, place with, like, a fancy city and they have magic, but like the rule is magic is banned. How do how does that affect like the local economy? How does that affect uh, the people in it? How does that affect like the animals around this city? I don't know. Um, all of those kinds of things mm-hmm. can like balloon from this like this rule that you've established. Um, and then like because like that's kind of how right, like society right. works in real life. Like we have these rules, and because of that, and and, and it doesn't have to be like like laws. It can just be like law like I guess it could be like laws of physics. Like we have gravity. And so that's why we're all, you know, on the ground. We've established everything on the ground. But like if all of your characters fly, and that's a rule of their is of this world, how does how could that affect um how does that affect this place? How does that affect like how you travel between places and um do business and such? Those are all the kind of things that uh you you, you can think about, I suppose. That, that's how, yeah, that's how I've been like, yeah. doing it in the past. It was like, I like come up with a set of rules that I guess it's kind of like with game design, really. You come up with a set of rules that this game is going to, mm-hmm. to be, or this, this, this world is going to have. And then like you create that sense of place through that rule set. Yeah. Right, right. Like that- the world building is the, is a lot of the, the rules you set mm-hmm. and the things you decide. And then this sense of place that you're describing, at least the way you're describing it, is yes. expression of that. Yeah. Right. And and communicating to that in a player that isn't yeah in a in a tome in a library or in a in a set of right. instructions exactly. or whatever. Mm-hmm. I like I like that a lot because I feel like it's almost like starting in the middle because I think you know I've read books and I've played games where it started with the world building and then they're like all right now mm. I have to put a plot in here and sometimes yeah. <laughs> it falls flat but like if you start in the in the middle about thinking about okay so what are the rules then like taking it forward how does this get expressed in the environment that the player is moving through like moment by moment? Mm-hmm. And then you can also kind of work backwards from that saying, okay, let's do the world building now. How did these rules come to be? Yeah. That's kind of a cool, that's a cool entry point. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, there's a, I'm mean, sorry. Stephen, I, <laughs> I saw this coming. Here. I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> oh, we is, made it so far. <laughs> we made it so far. The, uh, the famous Star Trek transporter was a res- result of one of these rules, a production rule which was when they were making this show, they were like, we're going to land on planets every week, right? Because it's science fiction up to that point, mm-hmm. it's like rocket ships landing on planets. That was what pe- that's just what you assumed it was. But they're like, well, that's going to require a lot of uh, uh, model building and 
you know, a lot of uh, unique filming that I, it's going to be yeah. too expensive for this production. So, okay, maybe we'll just limit our storytelling so we don't do that as much. But then they said, well, why don't we just have a system where people can just immediately go to a place and we'll come with us. We'll come up with a justification for it later. And so um, th mm. that that's how the transporter was born. But then on that is fine. That's but in order to make it feel real, then they needed to have like, OK, now we have a transporter room. And we have a transporter operator and they, they move those three levers up and they have command. Like it's a whole structure yeah. as to how that works so that it can justify the requirement that ultimately yeah. was a production concern. And then eventually you have Heisenberg compensators and all sorts of stuff in the Star Trek technical manual <laughs> that is just I love reading about. But like, um, but yeah, and then it and then it feels real. Like then then plot lines become about like the sort of social elements of a transporter. Like when you beam down to a planet, mm -hmm. like do you you don't beam into the middle of a crowd. You beam into like a, a little pat. You know, like all that stuff can then service into storytelling. And so that's a pretty that's a pretty. Yeah. I think that's an example people can understand. Um, but mm -hmm. all games have this right, like where the mechanics influence a choice that of the world building but then in order to make it feel real right more work has to be done that's yeah it was uh oh shoot cut this part where i'm thinking don't do it um leave it in okay quality thinking <laughs> live on air quality audio at least the sound quality is good yeah <laughs> Oh, I remember. Yes. So like the other cool thing that I, I just that this the this framework that you've described, yeah. Stephen, kind of drags for me is like, oh, yeah, if you start with the rules, then the other thing it lets you play with is like, what happens yes. when the rules are broken? So mm -hmm. then it's like, like you go to one area in your RPG where magic is banned and then you go to a different area where it's like celebrated, like that gives you right. so much to play with. And it that that change yeah, and that yeah. contrast is another mm -hmm. thing I think you can rely on to create a sense of space. Cool. Right. And having characters from from the city where it's banned go out into the retreats where it's like, what is it? How do they socially react to that? What makes them comfortable or uncomfortable? And then yeah. suddenly the place feels real because mm -hmm. it's, it's an it's an exception. to Yeah, exactly. Cool. And I think That's a lot cool. of ways that like people uh, can help, like can, that can make this feel real is like it, it uses properties and things that like work in real life. So like you could use laws like because we have laws in real life, but like um themes and stuff are also uh ways that you can approach it um so if uh i guess i can't come up with a good theme <laughs> but like if <laughs> I, i'm not making a world for you you can do it yourself <laughs> yeah right come even on. not doing all the work for you. um but yeah like if you if you have like a theme for your game or like the like an overarching idea of what your game is supposed to be um use that to influence what this what this world looks like and use that to influence um it, that that place you're establishing and specifically like yeah like if you're talking about mm -hmm. like things being banned in real life then you should like maybe you can either frame it as like your place is a utopia where this thing isn't banned and uh the people are prospering or you could use it as like this thing is banned and people are suffering as a result um you know f like if you frame it in that way then like people uh, the people can like see that and see the the um, metaphor in real life and go, oh, this is like a real thing that can happen in another land. And you have to keep an eye out for things that yeah. violate that sense, right? Um, and sometimes that means you have to change your mechanic yes. or your story or whatever, because uh, things you, because yeah, it, mm -hmm. it all has to still work together. Right? It's also helpful to have like a, just like a person or two specifically uh, who you'll be following, maybe the main character or like the uh, 
the main character's helper or something, mm-hmm. um, where like you establish this this set of rules and how does it affect this character that you want to just tell the story of. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Like a user persona. Yes. <laughs> how does your user persona get affected by magic being banned? <laughs> Well, it's different than like creating the story of the character, right? Because what you're talking about is like, okay, here are the conditions of the world. Let's map out the, you know, how the implications of these conditions and these yeah. rules on this person. And then you can like pull from that work as you're planning out their story. You know, like it might, the, the magic being banned, just to continue with example, might completely affect the way that these people brush their teeth in the morning. Not necessarily going to be part of <laughs> right. a very compelling story. <laughs> Because it's brushing of teeth. But if you mention it once, like, it makes it real and personal, but also can bring it, you know, bring that that rule mm-hmm. of the environment into focus. I think it's actually, brushing teeth is a bad example in this case, because mm-hmm. most of us brush our teeth through non-magical True. means. Um, so <laughs> maybe, yes. yeah. Okay. I said most. <laughs> but yeah, like, that's a, I think that's a yeah. good point. Like, like. <laughs> You can get, I think also, like, uh, a lot of people when they're, like, building their world or whatever, um, they establish a bunch of notes that don't end up showing up in the final product anyways, but, like, it helps you keep track of mm-hmm. what things would make sense for this character or this this place to, or for things to happen um, for either of those cases. Um, yeah, just because, like, yeah. it's hard to keep track of, like, you, in your mind, you'd be like, oh, yeah, this person doesn't like swimming. Um, but, like, maybe, like, they go to a lake or something, and then, like, you forget that. And they start swimming. Then, like you know, all of the fans would be like, "My cannon," or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, like, it's helpful to it's helpful to like have notes and keep keep track of them, and specifically keep track of why. The, man, this is sounding a lot like game design. This is just like game design. This is game design. <laughs> I mean, what is yeah. it? Well, I mean, it's one of the things that I will I circle back to in a lot of these episodes. Yeah, like, everything is everything. It's very true. Right? <laughs> it's helpful. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. Yeah. It's. It's it's world design, yeah. right? You're doing you're ta- you're doing a type of design that fits under game design in sem- yes. in yep, many yep, genres. It's very yeah. true. But yeah, you 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 were hinting at it like the idea that like a lot of these things are for you the designer, not necessarily yes. to be experienced by the player. Mm-hmm. And the motivation for a lot of the things you do and then players will sense that cohesion even right. if they can't connect all the dots. That's mm-hmm. very true. Yep. Right? Yeah. I think of it as um when I do this when I do this for work, uh, I basically find experts and people who have done like mm-hmm. the thing that we're trying to train on and interview them about like, okay, well, how does it work? And I try to get as detailed a picture of the story of how this task or skill works um, and the context and like the stories of it. And I just ask them as many questions as I can in whatever time box I have. Mm-hmm. And I, I describe this to them as like generating Legos that I will then pull from to make a coherent structure that can be used in the final experience. And I think that's a good way of when you're doing something like it's very imaginative that you are literally pulling from nothing but neurons firing. Um, I think that's a good metaphor to do it because like you, whatever you're going to make from your Legos, you want it to be something that makes sense, but you don't yet exactly know what will make sense because you're still creating like the bucket of Legos and all the Legos within it. Um, so just put a bunch of stuff down, right? And then pull from that to make a cohesive, a cohesive world and place. It's a great metaphor. Don't step on them though. Don't step on the Legos. <laughs> do not step on them. Don't do that. <laughs> that hurt. 
Um, I also want to bring up that, like, a historical place, like a, a place that's rooted in history, like if you want to talk about, uh, I don't know, ancient Japan, because we just talked about Ghost of Tsushima and stuff. Um, if you want to talk about that, like, you still have to do that. You still have to frame it as a real place. You still have to establish this as a sense of place. It's just you kind of have a guide that you can use, like there are um, history books uh, and things that you can use to have a better understanding of what it was like to live in that in that place at that time. Uh, but you still need to establish it. You can't just say this happened in uh, Soviet Russia, and uh, and then there's like uh, I don't know several McDonald's chains and a U.S. flag on the side. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> I think Russia has. As McDonald's, but like still, <laughs> we'll fact check that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like you, you still need to you still need to make an effort to establish it because it's not just because you said it doesn't mean it's something that the player will understand. They need to yeah. be able to feel it. They need to be able to see that. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have a, I have a recent recent game playing session challenge question for you guys, um, mm -hmm. and I want to hear Stephen's thoughts on this because okay. Stephen, I I, wa I watched your stream when when you were playing Civ 6 a couple oh, weeks right. ago. Yeah. Uh, I have since started and gotten like 15 minutes in, and this is the first grand strategy <laughs> game I've ever played, but I was really interested to see how the game like treated the historical aspects of it. And I gotta say, like, there, I don't get a strong sense of place from that game. Because yeah. Because yeah, the places right. are invented, kind of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's weird to be Napoleon or, or Gandhi or whatever, or Teddy Roosevelt, but then like almost in a, um, almost like a metaphorical sense and you're inventing your own history. So the sense of place is what you create. Yeah. yeah right? So Stephen, like in the framework that you're building for us here to think through a sense of place, like does that game spark any reactions or suggestions that's a good question. I think that, so, I think the way that Civilization Six, because I haven't played the other ones, um, the way that, that it doesn't really establish a sense of place, it establishes a sense of, like, I guess that's not the point of the game. The point of the game hmm. is really to, like, it's kind of like a celebration of history, and so there are a bunch of, like, and, and, and uh, impactful uh, places in, in history, too. Um, so, it, like, establishes a sense of things, like, things you can build, and you can, like, have your city uh, created with a bunch of these historical buildings and landmarks and such, even where it doesn't make any sense. Um, because, like, it's... I don't know, it, it makes you feel like you're creating a, an important civilization. Yeah. And so, like, all of the, like, even though, like, if you pick, if you pick China, and there are a lot of historically important Chinese cities in your nation, it's not you don't really feel like you're building the Chinese nation, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it almost benefits from not knowing a lot about the civilization you choose. Yeah. Which is maybe a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But I think when I play that game, like, there's the, all the, uh, the, the wonders you can build. Like, yeah. you can build the, the hanging gardens or the uh, 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 great pyramids or real-world historical great wonders. You can build right. them. Regardless, anyone can build them, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not interested in those except on a mechanical level right but when i build a university district in my city i'm very interested in that from a almost from a narrative perspective mm -hmm. when i play that game because it's it's like it's mine to create yeah. rather than pulling a page out of the encyclopedia i think mm. yeah so i always want like 
that game is so steeped in having these real world historical references. But I wonder what a game like it would be with just uh, essentially randomized uh, place names and 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 people, and not be, you know what I mean, being less specific about some of that stuff because it adds yeah. a really good flavor. But it can sometimes it butt up against that sense of place, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, no, I think that totally makes sense. And Stephen, what you just said about it being like a celebration of history rather than a mm-hmm. celebration of geography, uh, yeah. that kind of crystallized it for me. It's not about the places that these civilizations, to, you know, grew up, you know, arose in. I almost yeah. said grew up. <laughs> <laughs> baby civilization has become a toddler. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's about it's about like it's the technological advances and interactions with it their neighbors, I guess, is mm-hmm. the interesting the, the interesting part of it. I'll have to keep that in mind when I continue playing it to see if it kind of jogs any more ideas yeah. about sense of place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that was a good question, because like civilization on the surface seems like it is about places. And I mean, it is about right, places, right. but like not you being in those places so much as you seeing those places be built. Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I guess the last thing I wanted to leave out on is like any games out there where like it had really cool places that were established. Um, I know that I guess one that is somewhat controversial that I put in this list was Super Mario Odyssey. <laughs> I think Mark, you said you had some qualms about. Yeah, what we I- we uh, <laughs> we scheduled a fight about this. <laughs> we scheduled. <laughs> uh, wait one minute. It starts at three twelve. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, when we were when we were putting this list together before the sh- the show started, you were you're like, oh, th- I think this really wor- gives a sense of place, and mm-hmm. and I I um I don't think so, partly because everything is so like I'm thinking of like New Donk City, right? Yeah, um, it feels does not feel like a city even a little bit. To me. I mean, not an actual um, city, sure, but yeah, yeah, but I also like all the people wandering around. Like, I have no sense that they go anywhere. Sure. Um, and, and but I but I don't I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, like I'm okay with it because I think of Mario games as something that do not, that specifically do not create senses of places. The exception, like every, you know, uh, Odyssey has this, and other Mario games have it, where you go to Peach's Castle, mm-hmm. which does have a sense of place, even though a lot of it is just doors to levels or whatever. Yeah, it does sort of give you a sense of like this is the seat of the Mushroom Kingdom, and you know, it's got the the pathway out front and the moat, and like you get a sense of the history and reality of it, even if it's mostly a mechanical space. Mm-hmm. But it's the only place in any Mario game that gives me that feeling. Everything else feels purely a uh, playground in a way that is good. I like that about it. Yeah. I'm not looking for that sense of place. I'm looking for a, a theme and a style to give me a sense of, of, of movement in, in a space, but not a place. Sure. That yeah. makes sense. And yeah. I think one of the, maybe one of the reasons I'm not, I don't love Odyssey the way other people do mm-hmm. is that Odyssey does, I guess, try to make each of its, its places more give it more story and 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 give it more background yeah and i don't think it does a great job at that like i'm much more into the way galaxy does it which is just like these are these are tiny moons and they have stuff on them like i that feels more real and more honest to me i think than the way odyssey does it which is uh i want i want to be clear odyssey is one of the greatest games ever made (laughs) um but i think and and, but people do respond differently to that so i'm Mm -hmm. not i don't think i'm making an argument so much as that's just my view on it. I yeah. Suppose. But you feel differently. 
Well, yeah, okay, so the reason why I, I don't think that it does a great job of establishing sense of place either, because like okay. at the end of the day, all of these levels are built so Mario can move around to them in a certain way. And you can really feel that. Um, and that's fine, because yeah, yeah. it's a Mario game. That's Right, and that do. doesn't always preclude a sense of place. That's true. You know, it's it not one or the other, right? Yeah, but like that's not a priority that Nintendo typically has um, with the Mario games. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that with this with this game specifically, like they mapped out where all of these places are, and like Mario is specifically traveling on a on a ship between all of these different worlds, and so like it feels like it's a more of a real each of these areas feel like more real um, locations because of like that. Ad- right. additional de- those additional details like all of the different the travelogue of it all yeah yeah all mm-hmm. of the different worlds have their own different people and they have like their own like established like role in this big globe and like at the end of the day it kind of is weird that there's a big globe and there's also super Mario galaxy and all this other stuff but like that's not that's not the important thing the important thing is like yeah each spot has its own purpose in the globe mushroom globe or whatever it's called um and so it feels like they put. It feels like they put effort into making it feel like this is a this is a location that Mario is traveling to, um, and this is mm. and this is how its inhabitants live in this world, and this is the benefit, or this is what this city um, is contributing to the overall culture of the world and stuff. Yeah, I think maybe I'm underestimating that element because you make a really good case for it. But but I, I I agree though too like uh, uh, the other side of the spectrum like again it's a it's a Mario game and like so it doesn't the actual worlds themselves don't really embody that very well mm-hmm. like when you're running through the world it doesn't really feel like the Tostarina Kingdom is like a place for like a vacation spot or something right <laughs> yeah yeah it's not a place like the world has in, internal consistency from place to place and that yeah. all the places are kind of like a playground. Y- yes. Yeah. That's yeah. Very true. yeah. Yeah. I was gonna say contrast that with Metroid, uh, and I yeah. think you know it's also a Nintendo title, uh, but is way more about creating that sense of place. Yeah, that's very true. We were talking about that a little bit on the before we started recording that like Metroidvania games feel more like a place than other games do, almost paradoxically because they're designed in a purely mechanical way most right. of the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you spend a lot of time in them, so they fe- they become real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, like, because you spend all this time understanding how to navigate this map, um, you get a better idea of, like, what the world is and why, and why there are certain enemies in some places and in other places. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that, like, that, like, uh, Metroidvanias are kind of primed for players to feel like this is a, a sense this is an area to live in. Or not to live in, per se, but at least it's an area that things have lived in yet. Right, right. And it doesn't hold up to any logic. But yeah. it doesn't matter because you you because you it is real enough because you wander through it. Yep. You can kind of like cross your eyes a little bit and just believe this is really you know, a, a, a cave structure where these creatures are. Mm-hmm. Um, or we did it in Widget Satchel where like None of the geography in there made sense, but like you spend enough time in there, you kind of believe it's the bowels of the space station. Yeah. Like, even though it's not terribly logical and not a lot of effort is made to convince you logically that it's real, mm-hmm. you know? There is a reason all those exploding barrels are in there, okay? <laughs> That's because Ellen wanted them. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but yeah, like like uh, Super Metroid, which is always a, a great a perennial example to bring up on a in a conversation about game design. But like, mm. I wouldn't want to live on Planet ZBs. No, yeah. and everything is really designed in the, the environment is designed in a way that Samus can like move mm-hmm. from. Right. You know, it's the same thing that you were saying earlier about Mario, Mark, that it's like mm-hmm. uh, everything's basically like constructed. I think, Mark, you said this. Everything's constructed so that Mario can move around in it. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing. for Steve and I both made that point in yeah. service of our individual arguments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we were both right, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And well, it's the same thing for, for the Metroid games, right? Like, mm-hmm. but maybe it is just the just the amount of time that you spend in each zone or in the world overall that I think lends I think itself. the difference between those two games is like Metroid games are cohesive like the world is supposed to be cohesive mm, like this yeah. whole thing you're navigating through is supposed to be cohesive like whereas mm-hmm. Mario you travel between planets or or lands or whatever levels yeah, um, yeah just like it doesn't really matter how you do it you just get to it and then you can do what you think Mm-hmm. Right. And the the point you were making about Odyssey is that Odyssey makes an effort to justify that convention. Yes. By having you travel around one globe. Yeah. Right. So it, it, it maybe does a slightly better job um, than other Mario games would be. Mm-hmm. That just, you know, whisk you from map to map or whatever. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much of Metroidvania really helps too. And like a lot of Metroidvanias have like a starting area that is like much more richly. Uh, designed and a little bit more realistically presented mm-hmm. before it it dumps you into just a bunch of like corridors that are mechanically placed. Yeah. Um. I wonder how much of that es- establishes the sense of world. We did that in Widget Satchel too, where the bridge that Sprocket starts at is about the most realistic uh, uh, scenario or realistic like location in the game, and only by a little bit. <laughs> like it seems to be a natural instinct uh, when you're making a game like that is to sort of leave a first impression that this is real. As to justify whatever mechanical nonsense you are, uh, dump on the player later. Yeah, uh, that, I think there might be something to that. I don't know the specifics of it, but like, yeah, I think like just think about how Super Metroid starts. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it starts with a very narratively focused um, zone. Yeah, that that demands more of 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 it uh, to be to feel real than later parts, um, which good. assume you believe it. I suppose. Yeah. That's a really good point. Mm-hmm. Um, af- spoiler alert, but after you lose <laughs> all your gear and you land on the planet, uh, it's just that really big open area that makes it, I mean, that, that openness of the landing zone, I think, is a big factor in making the planet feel like a big, scary planet that you have to go mm-hmm. explore. Yeah, yeah hmm. it does make a difference. Yeah, I don't know. I think there is something to that, though. For sure. So what are some other games? Well, uh, one thing on this list we put in here is Alien Isolation. Ellen, you've played that. You like that game, right? I, I do. And I say <laughs> that because it's scary and I'm yeah. bad at it. <laughs> uh, but it does, I mean, it all takes place on one trip. And uh, the ships are big in this, in this particular setting. Uh, so there is like some movement from one part of the ship to the next where you don't have to necessarily do that by foot. You're doing it like by tram or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it is very much dependent on sense of place. And we were talking about this a little bit before the show and we wanted to bring this into the conversation about like the horror game genre specifically, mm-hmm. 
really yeah. relying upon sense of place, uh, specifically in the way that you've like constructed it for us, Stephen, and that it's that moment by moment detail. Like, yeah, someone was here and they had poured a cup of coffee and now it's moldy, you know, like, because the rules of the universe are, there was a ship full of people and then an alien got aboard, you know, like it's interesting that an entire genre of games is so dependent upon that. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You're you're a little bit disadvantaged uh, because neither Steven and I are into horror games. (laughs) And True. I only realized now that that used to be a, a thing of the whole show we would talk about. We didn't have any horror perspectives, but that's changed now uh, <laughs> that you're with us. Okay. That's probably for the better, frankly. Are you in, are you into horror games or is it just you? Yeah. You yeah, yeah. I mean, I try to play like a huge variety of games of all different types and genres. Um, and I do occasionally enjoy a good horror game, but mainly I'm just a big fan of the alien franchise. So, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Now that I know I have to be the one to bring horror game, the horror game. It's your responsibility, unfortunately. It's my responsibility. Okay. (laughs) You, uh, Steven has to talk about fighting games. I have to talk about Star Trek and you're saddled with horror games. (laughs) Well, (laughs) even though you're capable of either of those other topics. uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Someone put Grand Theft Auto here on the list of games with good place. Oh, I put that in there, even though I, I kind of hate that. I've grown to hate that series mm. for all the problems it has, uh, at least the way it's presented and written. Yeah. Um, but uh, in like Grand Theft Auto 4 and Grand Theft Auto 5, uh, New York and Los Angeles analogs that they uh, present, both do a pretty good job of building a world that feels real by the standards in which the game itself sets, right? Yeah. It's all sort of like lazily satirical, and I could... I don't want to get into how much I hate those games, but, um, but like, if, you know, if you've been to New York or Los Angeles, you can, you understand, like, you know, like, oh, uptown, downtown, I know, like, we're crossing the river into Brooklyn, like, you, you know, you understand how, um, uh, like, that, and a lot of that just draws from real world places, so, like, another example would be, like, Assassin's Creed games, they put a lot of effort into the historical reality of, of real places, while still making sure everything is climbable, and, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but like uh, Assassin's Creed Unity that uh, depicted sort of revolutionary era France is the mm. one that I think is the does the best job of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I put in Grand Theft Auto because it's an example of things that like rely on your sense of the real world to depict its fantasy world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, just gives a little head start, perhaps. But it ha- it's a big demand. It requires you to be to feel real because it can be very easily broken. So yeah. there's lots of games that are set in like future Chicago or whatever, and they're just generic city grids, mm-hmm. right? Um, oh, you know what? I should, the best example of this I should have used instead is, is Marvel Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Right? Because that is a really, really well done. I mean, like the Bronx is missing, but like it's a pretty good, uh, you really get a sense of it, of like of actual New York, at least in the sort of like Marvel sense. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, that's true. It, it establishes it as like the Marvel version of New York. Yeah. And you can climb Avengers Tower or go see Doctor Strange's um, uh, Sanctum or whatever. And then you get a, and those places feel uh, credible because the rest of New York feels familiar. Mm-hmm. And so when you see big Avengers Tower, you're like, well, that doesn't belong in New York. But like they do a n- good enough job of establishing New York as a real place in that game that you're ready to go with them on their version of New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's true. That's a good. That's a good example. I like that. And like it's it's rooted in uh, you know historic reality. So. Yeah. Stephen, you want to close with a favorite? 
on our favorite? No, you because you you had one on here you haven't talked about yet. Oh yeah, Breath of the Wild. <laughs> That's in here. Um, I, I like that one a lot because like it does feel like well everybody in the like in the world and all the different um, towns that you can visit that Link visits in, in Breath of the Wild. Uh, it feels like they you know they have their own thing and they're doing their own lives and stuff and like it's built the lore of it like helps with it too because like I guess if you have like an understanding of of other Zelda games it helps tell you why all these things are where they are or like you can tell that like this is a reference to another Zelda game and why it's a reference to it and it feels like a yeah it feels like it feels like there's reasoning for a lot of the, the names of things at the very in a way that is pretty satisfying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it almost has that meta sense that uh, that is like uh, like oh, I recognize this from Ocarina of Time or whatever, and like that should break your sense of of reality. But bec- the meta ness of it also almost provides almost like it's a museum to Zelda, mm-hmm. which is itself a place. Yeah, uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I didn't think about it in those terms, but that is a, that's like a secondary uh, win in in that category. Yeah. It's like it's and it's satisfying to it's satisfying to see like people move around in the world and like the the differences between day and night and stuff, but also uh, satisfying to see like why or see like a name you recognize a name see like why name that way like, uh, yeah. or in the understanding. It's like I just imagine it as like the feeling is like the representation of that Captain America gift where he's like I understood that reference. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. The other thing that game does really well, uh, just in in its own, uh, in, um, for its own story and its own sense of place, is that the the game is pretty sparse, right? Mm-hmm. Cities are not well populated, and so it it actually just the geography of it doesn't do a great job of making the place feel real. Yeah, every person you talk to remembers the tragedy from a hundred years ago and has like a, a theory on what happened, and mm-hmm. there's not an official lore book, but you get a sense. That the people in the world feel that the place is real, mm-hmm. yeah. And you and you you use their impressions, those NPCs, to to um, to validate your own sense that yes, it's real. Yeah. Um, even though like you're coming across a ton of uh, you know like the procedural animation versus the picking up things or the like all those things that make it feel very video gamey mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and less like a real place. Um, you you're you talk to an NPC who gives you the same three lines of dialogue over and over, also very video gamey. But the little hints they give you, it, like, helps you believe how real it all is yeah. because they talk about it. And they, I think they're advantaged by the place they're talking about is the place in the aftertimes. So a lot of what you think about in terms of it are things you're not going to see. Mm-hmm. And so it almost makes it easier to build the sense of place in your mind. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good way of putting that. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I guess it like established the rule ahead of time, right? And that's what, mm-hmm. and all of the characters are reacting to that rule, which gives like it gives the it gives all those characters some, you know, I guess some characterization. Like you understand yeah. their motivations because of how they're reacting to this thing, but also like you know how affecting this uh, event was for this place, and so the place the place feels more real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's a very good example. I'm glad I thought of it. <laughs> it's a great note to end out on yeah (laughs) Uh, well that's our show check out our website nicegames.club for show notes and links to resources on today's topics if you like this episode give us a review on your favorite podcast app and tell your friends
Independent podcasts like ours rely on word of mouth to grow. We love hearing from our listeners. That's you! For a quick way to give us feedback on the show, head over to nicegames.club slash feedback and fill out a short little form. You can also get in touch with your nice hosts on Twitter at Nice Games Club, where, where Dale... I'm laughing already. Where Dale tweets game dev resources and civilized frog pictures. You have to check it out to find out what she's talking about. <laughs> yeah. Is it for real a civilized frog there? Or you can email us through contact at nicegames.club. Ask us questions, suggest topics, or just say hello. So until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice. Who is Stephen Frozen? That? Am I frozen? I'm here. Oh, no. You were just holding very still. Okay. Oh. <laughs> What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.